following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. I want to invite you folks in from outside there. Good to see you all who are here. Betty, good to see you. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, they're, they're there. <laughs> yeah, today's better because of the rain, I think. Yes, uh, yesterday was uh, pollen.com. You know that source, pollen.com? Yeah, it was about 7.8 out of 10, I think, yesterday. And uh, there's a website for everything, isn't there? And uh, t- today's a little better, about half of that. Tomorrow's going to be worse again. So junipers, maples, and um, elm trees now. Of course, we got rid of two huge elm trees on our property, so... We, uh, we don't have that problem as nearby as we did before. So, Well, welcome. Uh, are we live, brother? All right, so the whole world is hearing about our pollen problems. Okay. <laughs> Let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please. I'm going to be uh, addressing in this uh, next little while the sixth part of our series on the resurrection. And if you're... Uh, tracking along with me, then you know that I will have skipped part five, but don't fear because that will come in about 50 minutes, okay? Maybe in a little more than 50 minutes, an hour and 15 minutes will give it, okay? So I felt it would be more suitable to do it in this order this morning since I had the opportunity to teach in this hour and the next, and Lord willing, this evening as well. Um, I thought I would take this part six. We'll do part five today later, and then part seven, Lord willing, later than uh, in the evening service. So we've done four parts of this series, three today, and then uh, the final and capstone next week for Resurrection Sunday. And I'm looking forward to that as God wills. First Corinthians uh, chapter 15, let's turn to 29 to 34 in that chapter, 15, 29. The Bible says, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, then, or sorry, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Okay, So recall that we already addressed at great length um, Paul's argumentation about the problem in the church with regard to no resurrection teaching. Somebody in the church or some bodies were teaching that there is no resurrection of the dead at all. And Paul addressed that in chapter 15, verse 12, in an earlier section. And he kind of addresses it and then departs from that thought process and then comes back to it here in verse 29. And that's why I thought we would do this this morning, just kind of tie those two together. In verse 12, he says, If Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection? Of the dead. That's a teaching that is very popular today, very uh, kind of 
I don't know, just well accepted, if you will, just natural for people today to, to think, well, there's no resurrection, and just live and you die, and that's it. So that guides their, their living, gives them a philosophy of life. So some are saying no resurrection. These are false teachers, even if they did not style themselves as teachers per se. You don't have to say to the church, look, I'm a teacher or be in a Sunday school teaching uh, role. If, you're, if you are propagating this kind of thing, you are a teacher and you're a false teacher, right? You can be a, a layman in the church with no office, no teaching ministry, but you're talking to people, yada, 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 and you're telling them these false doctrines. You are, a, a, in effect, a false teacher. Now, the Bible frankly admits that if there is no such thing as a resurrection, then Christianity has a fatal problem. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not alive. And as we looked at last time, when we touched on 12 through 19, there are eight consequences of that. So no resurrection means Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, then 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, here they are. Christian preaching is empty. Okay? The pulpit is useless, is what he's saying. Number two, uh, Christian faith is empty. The pew is useless. The pulpit is empty. The pew is empty. Number three, Ministers of Jesus are liars because if Christ is not raised, they're testifying that he is raised, and so they would be teaching a falsehood, a, uh, an imaginary thing. Number four, Christian faith is futile. Number five, Christians are still in their sins if Christ is not raised, and we know the horrific thought process that goes with that. We know that that is an awful, awful thought. And just because it's awful, by the way, doesn't make it true that Christ raised from the dead. It's true that Christ raised from the dead because it's true. It's true because it happened. It's true because God arranged it to happen. He raised him from the dead. But that is what guarantees that Christian sins are washed away and gone, and we don't have to be in our sins still. Number six, those who have died are gone, finished, doomed, and there is no hope for them. They're just simply gone. And then number seven, there is no hope in this life if Christian, uh, if Christian doctrine is false. Uh, the resurrection is not true. There's no hope. Uh, that, that's, that's a bad deal, you know. You think about it. There are a lot of people who live with basically, in effect, no hope. I don't think they think about it too deeply because if you do, then it gets to be a very morose, uh, morbid kind of existence, don't you think? If, if you're just living your life now and uh, after 70, 80, 90 years, it's just over, there's nothing, everything you've accumulated is worthless, uh, everything you've done is forgotten, your body is disintegrated in the grave, it just it's, it seems pointless. But, and that's actually how people live, isn't it? They kind of have that in the background and and they focus on things that are, that are in this life uh, kind of high priority for them, but they're really not that important. Number eight, finally, Christians are of all, of all people most pitiable because they believe something that's false if there's no resurrection from the dead. Now, the apostle gave those eight. We looked at them in detail, but he cannot stop his analysis there. He attacks the false teaching directly in verse 20. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Head on, he deals with this. Uh, and then he returns 
in verses 29 to 34 to the supposition, again, that what, what if people, or what if no one's raised from the dead? What if Christ is not raised from the dead? And he gives these consequences, uh, number 9, number 10, and number 11 in our list. I just continue the numbering from earlier. Uh, and he's going to use that to say to the people in Corinth, look at how stupid this is that you're talking about this. No resurrection doctrine. Now, to us, this is convincing because we, we have a whole bunch of other you know, beliefs and understandings and we know history and the history of the of Christian church and the history of the resurrection and all of that. Don't, by, by the way, this is for all of us who are interacting with unbelievers, don't expect this kind of line of argumentation to convince them of your faith. This kind of argument really works for people that are connected to the faith to show them the foolishness of what they're doing if they say they don't believe certain key doctrines of the, of the Bible, but yet they practice some of it, not all of it. Um, but those who have embraced Christ then will be persuaded by this, but those that have not will just find this so much empty chatter, what we're doing here this morning. Uh, remember that persuasion, my argumentation, is not nearly enough to bring someone to faith in Christ. You with me? You know, you can try to persuade somebody until you're blue in the face, but unless they come into a connection with God and God grants them repentance and faith, unless they recognize their sinfulness and and it dawns on them the, the, the depth of the consequences of sin and where they are with God, they are not going to be persuaded. So it's much, there's much more required to bring someone to faith in Christ than mere, the logic of mere argumentation. So Paul goes on now and he gives more objections to this no resurrection doctrine in 29 through 32. And then he is going to attack this doctrine and directly confront it in 33 and 34. And hopefully after we're done here this morning, you'll have a better understanding of these verses in the context of chapter 15. What we don't want to do is we don't want to just lift them out and look at them by themselves and not have them connected into the context. And I think you'll see that, especially when we come to 33 and 34. All right, so Paul's going to go on to after his um, you know, 12 through 19 here, his number 1 through 8 objections. He's going to deal with uh, the order of the resurrections, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the kingdom this morning in the next hour, in verses 24 to 28. But then he comes back, and he's dealing with more of these objections. And he says, first of all, well, and it'll be number 9 on our list, because we have 8 objections already, or 8 consequences, false consequences of this false teaching. He says this, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? So he's basically saying, if Christ is not raised from the dead, it's pointless for people to be baptized for the dead. Now, let me just skip over for one moment. I'm not going to skip it entirely, but skip over for one moment. What does it mean to be baptized for the dead? Because that just you know, boggles your mind probably. Skip over that for a moment. Why would you do, whatever it is, why would you do anything 
why would you do it, baptism for the dead? Or why would you do X of Christian practice if Christ is not raised from the dead? Why would you do that? Why, why do you come to church this morning if Christ is not raised from the dead? Why do you talk to people about the Bible if Christ is not raised from the dead? Why do you read your Bible if Christ is not raised from the dead? Why do you believe Christian type of things? Why do you pray if Christ is not risen from the dead? What are you doing? If you, now, this is in the Corinthian church. What are you doing if you think there's no resurrection and yet you're coming to church? Forget it. You're, you're being like terribly inconsistent. So no matter what baptism for the dead is, if Christ is not raised, it's all just empty religious ritual with no meaning at all. That's what his argument is, basically. Now, we have, and I think so it's kind of easy in that sense. We get turned around in the verse because we get caught up in this baptism for the dead thing. But remember, it's really saying whatever you're doing in Christian, in, in, in religiosity and playing church is useless if Christ isn't risen. So just stop playing and, and move on with life if you believe that Christ is not risen from the dead, if you believe there is no resurrection of the dead. Stop pretending, stop playing, just get on with life. Okay? But let's in, address this issue of being baptized for the dead. What is it? Well, it was a practice by early Gnostic groups which are false, uh, a, a kind of a false offshoot, not kind of, really a false offshoot of Christianity. And there were a couple of groups. One were called the Marcionites, M-A-R-C-I-O-N. That's a fellow who was a heretic in the early church. And then there was another fellow named Serinthus. And it's spelled just like Corinth, but Serinth. So it's got an E, not related to Corinth. But it's he, the followers of this guy, Serinthus, became known as Serinthians. So you might read that and say, well, it looks like Corinthians, but it's not Corinthians. It's Serinthians, okay? Um, so they practice this idea of baptism for the dead. Now, it's not practiced by mainstream Christians today and uh, Catholics as well, as I understand it, although some sects do practice baptism for the dead. Now, it's also known as vicarious baptism or proxy baptism. Maybe an easy way to understand it with proxy. You know how when you're absent from a business meeting, you can have a proxy vote for you? Okay, that's what this is. A living person goes through the ritual of baptism in place of or as a substitute for a dead person. And whatever then the idea is, and this is a false doctrine, just be sure you know that, okay? The, the idea is that whatever would be conferred to the living person for baptism, whatever baptism does to a person, that would be done to the dead person, even though they're dead. That's proxy baptism. So, you know, person A gets baptized in place of person B who is dead. That's the idea of baptism for the dead as they understand it. Now, there's another explanation that people offer. Let me actually, I'll, I'll mention it just now, I guess, at this place. If, if, you're, you know, if you're kind of pushed into a corner and you want to give an, a, a positive understanding of what baptism for the dead is, I don't think you have to do this, but this is a viewpoint that is offered. 
You could say that baptism for the dead is baptism in view of those who have died, not baptism proxy, but baptism in view of those who died or in honor of those who have died. In other words, a faithful Christian had died. Other people observed their faithful conduct and wanted to become Christians because of that, and they get baptized. And they kind of, this could be the case, they could think of their baptism as in honor of the dead person. That would be what some say baptism for the dead is because they're trying to wash away all the, all the bad connections to it. But I'm telling you today, there does exist this idea of proxy baptism, which I'll mention again in a moment, and it's not a good idea. It's not a sound doctrine. So this, the kind of good spin on this, if I could say it that way, is somebody's died. They were a great Christian testimony. Some other people got saved because of their Christian testimony. And they said, look, when I'm baptized, I want to be baptized in memory of the person who was the witness who led me to Christ. Even if that's the case, even if that's the case, that good spin on it, if Christ is not raised from the dead, why would you do that? Why would you do that? If you're just going to die and be annihilated, no resurrection, why would you do that? But let me go back to this idea, this true, uh, this not true, this, uh, how can I say, this actual thing that people do, baptism for the dead. The Mormon church has practiced baptism for the dead since 1840. That's very early on in its history. This is important to them because they believe that baptism is required to enter the kingdom. Okay? Are you with me? They base that idea on a faulty interpretation of John chapter 3 and verse number 5. Why don't you turn there if you don't have it in your memory. John chapter 3 and verse number 5. John chapter 3 and verse number 5. I would have somebody here read it, but that's not going to help those that are online, so I will adapt our uh, approach here this morning to accommodate those online viewers. John chapter 3, verse number 5 says, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So they suffer. The, the Mormon church suffers from this uh, mental block Whenever they see water, they think, what? Baptism. Eh, wrong. Okay. Remember, I said over and over and over again in this church that John the Baptist's teaching should, uh, should uh, help us to be disabused of that notion. He said, I baptize you with water, but one comes after me who is mightier than I, a sandal I'm not worthy to, to loose, He baptizes with what? The Spirit and fire. This water baptism that I'm doing, which is not exactly the same as Christian baptism, but it's just a lowly symbol, metaphor, uh, shows the connection of people to the message of repentance. But there's one coming after who's going to baptize with the Spirit and fire. That baptism is the important key baptism in Christian theology. Water baptism is secondary to that. And... Turn your Bible back to Ezekiel 36. 
Baptism is not even what John is talking about here, or sorry, what Jesus is talking about recorded by John. He is talking to Nicodemus, an expert in the law, and he's, remember how he, he rebukes him later? You know, don't you know? You're an expert teacher of the law of Israel and you don't even know this? Go back to Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Here we're going to find out what the water is all about. It's not baptism. Ezekiel 36, 25. Ezekiel 36 and 25. Part of the new covenant promises of God. And God says this, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. Here it is. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Okay, you saw water in the spirit there, didn't you? Let's look at that again. I will give you, uh, I will sprinkle clean water on you. What does that mean? You will be cleansed. Okay? It's something like in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul says that Christ uh, cleansed the church by the washing of the water of the word, the message of the gospel. And so being born of water and the spirit means to be cleansed. Water is a figure, a metaphor for cleansing and of the Spirit, that the Spirit of God would be put into you. It's not at all water baptism. It's to be cleansed. By the way, when you go into the waters of baptism, not a single sin is washed away. Okay, It's not even a very good bath. There's no soap. Okay, <laughs> I don't mean to make light of the ritual of baptism. I mean to help you by humor to understand its place. It is demonstrating a reality that has happened in the life of a believer already before they ever enter the water. The water is a public testimony. The water is showing a connection with Christ that has prior been made in their life. It has nothing to do with John chapter 3. You need to be born again, Jesus teaches Nicodemus, and that entails being washed, being cleansed, having your sins forgiven, and the Spirit coming in you and you having a new life. Being, being brought to new spiritual life, okay? So the Mormon doctrine is entirely off base to suggest that you have to be baptized in order to enter the kingdom. But they do that. They have that mistake here. Number, so they say, got to be baptized to get into the kingdom. And if you've died and you haven't been baptized, then you're not going to get into the kingdom. They thus reason falsely, but they reason and so they say, well, we've got to do something for these poor people that haven't been baptized. So we're going to baptize by proxy for them. Now, in 2018, they felt that this was so important that they made some changes to this doctrine. And they said the change is effective January 1, 2018, will allow boys who are part of the church's Aaronic priesthood between 16 and 18 16 to 18-year-olds are Aaronic priests, A-A-R-O-N, of the line of Aaron to them. They will be allowed to officiate in baptisms on behalf of individuals who are dead, including as a baptizer or as a witness. 
These roles were previously limited to older males who advanced in the religion's priesthood designated as belonging to the Melchizedek priesthood. Did you know that? The Mormons have Aaron, line of Aaron priests, they have line of Melchizedek priests. That is blasphemous, my friends. First of all, there's no priesthood today. There's one priest, Jesus, the one mediator between God and men. There's only one priest now who is in the order of Melchizedek, and that is Jesus Christ. That was a very unique priesthood. It's not filled up by older Mormon men. It is filled up by one man, Christ Jesus. Now, they say this also in this article that I found. Teens, teenagers, and others can currently be baptized in proxy for those who have died and who didn't have the LDS baptism ritual performed in life. The change now gives the younger men in the church priesthood an active role in baptizing others. Okay, so they really believe in proxy baptism. Remember, the whole big picture here is whatever you're doing, if you believe there's no resurrection, it's useless. But they were doing something about this baptism for the dead, and it's either baptism in honor of or memory of because of you know, being thankful for their lead, being led to Christ, or, as these people believe, substitute proxy vicarious baptism, which has some effect on a person, allows them to enter into the kingdom of God somehow. I don't even mention in these notes how this is all based on a faulty view of the kingdom to begin with. So, but we have to move on. So my, my suspicion is that what's going on in the Corinthian church is that there are some who are practicing proxy baptism for the dead And even those who said there is no resurrection were doing this activity. In other words, the false teachers were doing this practice. And I I believe very firmly that Paul was not approving of what they were doing in proxy baptism or baptism for the dead, if that's what it was. But rather, he was asking, why do you do that if there's no resurrection? That's dumb. Trying to persuade them away from this doctrine of no resurrection and showing how foolish and ridiculous that it really is. So please note again, Paul does not explicitly indicate approval of baptism for the dead, does he? Do you see that? You don't see any approval there. All you see is Paul mentioning the practice and saying, Why are you doing that? It's a fact, it's what's happening in the church. But it, this all leads me to believe it was an unorthodox practice that had cropped up in the church, participated in by unorthodox teachers. It's kind of can, just, just brings up in my mind. If somebody, if somebody says there is no resurrection of the dead, why are you listening to anything that they say? If so, it's just like today. People say certain things. You just kind of have to just, you know, turn down the dial. Stop listening because they don't know what they're talking about. And, and their teaching is dangerous. Now let's just review a couple of basic truths for those that might not be aware of what baptism means and what, it, what baptism for the dead certainly cannot mean. Baptism does not, water baptism now, does not save anyone, whether they're baptized themselves or someone else does it for them. And when you die, you have no second chances to receive Christ or become a Christian or get saved or be baptized or anything of the sort. And so baptism for the dead seems to be an oxymoron. It does not and cannot make sense. And one evidence that it's out of place is this, that no 
modern churches of any kind of conservative bent or evangelical bent, no churches practice proxy baptism or anything that's called baptism for the dead. It's been uh, you know, dispensed, recognized as a heretical practice. Okay, so we've got to put that to, to bed for now, this baptism for the dead. doesn't make sense to do anything of the sort if you don't believe in the resurrection. Secondly, back in 1 Corinthians, uh, if you were in John chapter 3 there, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. And now in verses 30 to 32, it's not only useless to do this practice of baptism for the dead if you don't believe the resurrection, but if you don't believe the resurrection, it's also useless for a minister to jeopardize his life for the gospel. Why would you do that? Again, foolishness. He says in verse 30, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? He says, the point of verse 30 is, you know, why am I living the way that I'm living? My life is under constant threat all the time because I'm a believer in Jesus in the resurrection. He he goes, you know, before the council in Acts, uh, in, you know, 21, 2, 3, 4, all the way through there, because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I stand here in this this place being judged. That's, That's why he's there. And then he says in verse 31, the point of 31 is, he he talks, he says, you know, I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus, I die daily. The point of the verse is not to focus on the affirmation and the boasting and all that, but he's saying, look, I'm saying, I'm facing death every day. The, the, The Apostle Paul lived under a constantly elevated threat level, okay? It wasn't green, it wasn't yellow, it wasn't orange, it was red for him all the time. Listen to this. He, he had death threats. Have you ever had a death threat? I have never experienced a death threat. I know that it would be very troublesome, very worrisome. Uh, you know, I know a lot of public figures have, but I have not. But think of the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 9, verse 23. You don't have to turn to all these. I can give these to you later, but he's in Damascus. The people are watching the gate. They're going to kill him. So they let him down through the the wall in a basket. Remember that? Acts chapter 14, he's taken and stoned nearly to death. Acts chapter 20, there's a plot against him by the Jews to kill him. Acts 21, there's another plot. Acts 23, another one. Acts 23, 12, yet another one. Acts 25, 3, yet another one. And probably quite a few others that are not recorded in the Bible. And then you have 2 Corinthians 1, 9. He says we have the sentence of death in ourselves. Uh, that we might learn not to trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. There was some situation that was, that was uh, deadly for him. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. I'll just read that one. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 26. He says, listing all of the problems that he's had. Uh, three times he was beaten. Once he was stoned, shipwrecked. Day and a night he spent in the ocean. In journeys often, verse 26 says, in perils of waters, robbers, my own countrymen, Gentiles in in the city, in the wilderness, in the sea, among false brothers. He's facing it all. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine verses. Let those sink in. He is facing death all the time simply because he is a Christian minister of the gospel. That's all. That's all. We, I think, have a little better understanding of that in our own land in in the West during COVID. 
and some of the pastors that have been harassed, some jailed because they preach the gospel, want to open their churches as God has directed them. Uh, but the, nothing compared to what Paul had, at least yet. So this was a daily threat for Paul. He resigned himself that today, you know, when, when he woke up, Lord, thank you for allowing me to wake up today, but I know today might be my last. I've got to live it for you. That was Paul's mindset. I die daily. You know, he gave up his life every day. That was the mindset in which he lived. He lived because he was ready to die. That's how he could live. But why would he do that if the gospel were false? It would be a ridiculous way to live. What should he do? Go make tents, get his social security, and die. Be happy with that, right? That's a crude summary of what life is, but uh, it's far easier than being under the death sentence every day. Or why would he fight with beasts at Ephesus? Look at this in verse uh, number 32. What advantage is it to me to have fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead do not rise? Why would he do that? Now, what, what does he mean by fighting with beasts? First thing that comes to mind is he had some altercation with a, you know, a, a, a bad animal. But I don't think he's talking about animals here. I think he's talking about false teachers, idolaters, Along the lines of this, let me read this to you from uh, 2 Peter. I'll get to 2 Peter more quickly than to the other reference here. 2 Peter 2.12. Peter says about false teachers, these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed speak evil of the things that they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. We'll receive the wages of unrighteousness. What are those wages? Wages of sin is death. They will receive those. So Peter and Jude also, in Jude verse number 10, speak of these people who are like brute beasts, okay? instinctual animals. They, they follow their, their baser desires, and they, they have this false teaching in their in their churches, in their lives. And so I think he's talking about pagan idolaters. And he says, at Ephesus. Now that gives us a clue. In Acts chapter 19, when he was at Ephesus, there was a huge mob that came together because they said, look, they were under the influence of the idol manufacturing industry, if I could put it that way those people that wanted to build silver shrines for the goddess Diana said, look, these Christians are going to come in and take away all our business because people aren't going to believe in these false gods anymore. And so a whole crowd got together and they were chanting, uh, you know, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And Paul was going to go and speak to them, but his friends didn't let him go into the, the uh, theater, you know, the, the uh, place where they were uh, because they were going to just tear him to pieces, literally, physically kill him because of what he was doing to their economics, they thought. And so he is saying, why would I face this opposition if Christ is not raised from the dead? It's foolishness. And then finally, in verse 32, in this section here, he says, if the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
you know, the hedonist, hedonist philosophy makes great sense if there's no consequences to how you live. Wouldn't you agree? There's no consequences to how you live. There's no judgment. Live it up. Eat, drink, be merry. Party all the time. Whatever you can get away with. You know, there's a few constraints. You know, you gotta you gotta have a job to make money to pay for all the party goods and everything. But I mean, eh, you know, do whatever you can to to get you know the most out of out of life. Without hope here, we live like animals, really. No afterlife in your theology leads to living for things that are mere pleasures with no eternal value. Now, some people think that this philosophy was new or somehow uh, an invention of you know, the, one, the, the, the wise Greek philosophers. But if you look in Isaiah 22, we don't have time to go there this morning. Isaiah 22, the same exact philosophy is there. Now, it's in a slightly different context. They're saying, look, we're facing you know, imminent destruction from our enemies. You know, some enemy is going to come in and trample them down. So we might as well just live it up now, kind of have, you know, the, the, the Belshazzar final party because the handwriting's on the wall. We might as well just, you know, get drunk and enjoy ourselves the much, as much as we can because we're about to die. But that's the same basic idea of what people are doing today. You know, living for, living for beer, living for getting drunk at happy hour. What kind of emptiness is that? People, people, listen, you need to live for something more than, than, than beer. You know, it's ridiculous what the world thinks. But if they don't believe in the resurrection, then, then you can understand how they think that way. Now, Paul goes into a direct confrontation in verses 33 and 34. And I see that I'm going to, uh, going to uh, miss uh, giving this all to you because we have run out of time. But... Let me just read it, and then I think I'll pick up on, the, on it in the morning because it is an important concept uh, in the morning service here next. It's an important concept. It says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Can I just kind of paraphrase what he's saying here to summarize, and then we'll look at this a little bit more? Don't be deceived. You people in your church have bad people there. And it's going to corrupt you. In fact, he says, listen, wake up. Wake up to righteousness. Not not wake up to all the things that people want you to be woke to today. Wake up to righteousness and do not sin. Why? Because there are some who do not know God. That's what it means. It's, you, know, you can kind of read over that and, and miss the, the, the impact of it. What he's saying is there are some people in your church that are unsaved, they do not know God, God does not know them savingly, they are lost, and you're listening to their false teaching. If somebody says there is no resurrection from the dead, they are not a Christian. You with me? Plainly. That's what he's saying. They have not the knowledge of God. So let's not sugarcoat this and pretend it away and all of that. He's simply saying they don't know God, they're influencing your church. Evil company corrupts good manners, good habits, good, good doctrine, and, and you're in very grave danger there in Corinth of having that happen to you. It's happening, and you need to put a stop to it. Okay? 
But they had a problem in Corinth because even back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when they had the immorality issue in the church, it said, Paul said, why are you not rather ashamed? You're actually proud of it. And you're promoting it and saying, look, we have this man in our church and I don't know how they did this. You know, we're so forgiving and it'll be all fine and everything. No, he's saying, he said to them, get rid of this immorality out of your church. You need to have shame over sin. You need to be awake to righteousness, not asleep to it. So we'll have to cover the rest of that in a little bit. Thank you for participating this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time you've given us in the Word, allowing us to look at this little section of Scripture. Lord, help us to be awake to righteousness. Help us to know that a false doctrine like this does have a corrupting, very corrupting influence. And Lord, thank you for just allowing us to be a little more informed about these verses so that as we read through them, we'll understand them better in the future. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.